Well, good morning. We've been walking through a series called Grace Unleashed here at Rimrock Church, and uh, the desire is to unpack and try to give clarity in this concept of grace and how it relates to our works and what it means to uh, live under the law. And today we're going to talk about licentiousness. And this is probably the sermon in the series that uh, could get me in trouble a little bit. So again, my name's Bob Cole, and I thank you for coming. <laughs> no, Bob, Bob preached a few weeks ago, and he's preaching at uh, Heart Ranch today. So I'm Nick Ewing, and, and this is what I drew. Um, there, there, is, there is some concern I have for this message. The concern would be this. When you take a passage in Scripture, and on face value it seems to be saying one thing, but if you look at the whole canon of Scripture, uh, you recognize perhaps it's not saying what it seems to be saying up front. And, and this message could have a feel uh, that focuses a little bit on, on what we do, on, on works. And the tendency could be, well, wait a minute, we, we talk a lot about grace here at Rimrock, and, and this doesn't quite feel the same. And I have no desire, and I don't think I'll say anything that contradicts uh, Rimrock's core values or that flies in the face of the grace of God. Uh, but it takes, it, it's, it may have a different feel. And so um, if you're a visitor, I'm going to encourage you to listen to some sermons before this and perhaps after this, uh, because I think this, this message needs enveloped in uh, all of what we've been teaching. And we're going to review that real quick. You don't need to be too nervous. Um, and this isn't a disclaimer so I can just get up here and say anything I want. Uh, Jesus uses a lot of comments in Scripture. Uh, one of them, for instance, we'll be reading. He says, All men will come before the judgment seat of Christ and will be judged by what they have done in their bodies, the good and the evil. Now, on face value, that feels like, Whoa, okay, I'm going to be judged, or may, does that mean heaven and hell? What does that mean based on what I have done? Um, yet, what do I do with that verse when we also read in Ephesians 2 that, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, not of anything that we have done but a free gift from God. And so, again, up front you think, I, I need some clarity here. And so my desire is to clarify some of this uh, for yourself. It's hopefully to clarify some of this for, for myself. So in light of that and knowing that we have an enemy that would love to cloud uh, and blur our vision, uh, but we also have a God that he says we can call upon him and he is greater than the enemy, uh, I'm going to ask if you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your mercy and your grace that you, uh, with your desire to be made known, with your desire for all of us to come to repentance and salvation, with your desire to glorify yourself and for us to love you and love each other, I thank you that all of that is so much greater than my limitations uh, trying to interpret your word, trying to deliver your word. And so I surrender to your spirit and ask for your covering and your protection against the enemy that anything that he would try to implant in our hearts or our thoughts uh, would be canceled out in the name of Jesus. I thank you for your enduring word and your truth that we're going to hold on to. We invite you here we ask that you would have your way with us, that we would decrease and you would increase. Give me a deep love for you and for these people. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
Okay, so, so far, we've discussed in this series the idea of saving grace. Basically, that it is a gift given from God to us by way, for our salvation. And it, we have been gifted with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have become one with Christ Jesus and have inherited eternal life totally and completely and purely by the grace of God. We've talked about, Bill talked about grace for living, how once we are redeemed, once we are saved, that it takes grace and it requires the work of God upon us, in us, and through us to live the Christian life. And so in relationship with Christ, as I continue to surrender and make myself available and present myself as a living sacrifice, then it is Christ who works through me and does anything good. Bill discussed how sometimes that doesn't always look uh, like we anticipate it to look in some of our religious um, paradigms. And so he gave the example of when we are focused on our relationship with Jesus and not simply kind of a list of principles or things we do. So we're, we're talking with Jesus in prayer. We're listening to God through his word. Uh, sometimes that leads us to do things like buy baseball cards for our son to carry on that relationship. Other times it led him to have a beer with a neighbor who is Tom Haggerty who leads worship, right? So he's saying this requires a relationship and this is grace being executed on us and through us. We've unpacked the law, how the law is perfect, how it reveals the character of God. It comes from God. It reveals a standard of living that promotes health and safety. It is helpful for building relationships. Uh, Dave Westergaard showed us how one of the purposes of the law is to show us that we are unhealthy, that we are broken, where it gives us this perfect standard, and then it's, see, you don't meet it. He gave the example of an x-ray that declares something's broken, something's wrong, but the law does nothing to fix that something wrong. Uh, Bob and Dave both talked about how that was designed to usher us over or to show us our need for Jesus. In other words, God's saying, I want to establish this law that is perfect and holy, and I need you to try to fulfill it. Because when you try and when you fail, now you're going to know you need a Savior. You need a Messiah. You need Jesus Christ to meet that perfect standard and then credit it to you. What the law demands, grace supplies. We've discussed a little bit about what it looks like to live under the law, or the word that we throw around often is, is to live in legalism. And basically that means I'm trying to justify myself or I'm trying to be counted as righteous based on my works, based on things that I have done. And to live underneath the law brings about curses. Bob Cole unpacked some of those curses, that it demands perfection. And because of that, I have this heavy sense of responsibility that produces anxiety. Also, because it's not focused on relationship, but it's focused on standards, it's easy to start comparing myself to other people. And in that comparison, I can get highly judgmental. And I can hold you up to my own, my standards. Or in that comparison, I can feel like I'm a total failure. I don't do this as well as so-and-so. And so I walk around in guilt and shame. And so because of all this, it, it distracts from the relationship component of Christianity, which is what it is, Jesus Christ, and it focuses more on uh, these standards and these lists. And it's, it's all based on the deception that I can meet any of them. And so it produces an arousal of sinful flesh. Mike Allsteel discussed how sometimes these curses can actually be blessings 
because it makes life so uncomfortable and it's so annoying that I don't want to carry on in those. So I, I go back to the right way of living. He gave the example of the rumble strips along the side of the highway, right? If I get off, I want to gently get back on. And so even the curses of the law have this fingerprint of God's grace to bring us back to Jesus, back to relationship. And today we're going to discuss this concept of licentiousness. And what I mean by that is basically when we use the grace of God to move us to selfish and sinful living. We think the grace of God and the forgiveness of God gives us a license to sin. The term is licentiousness. 1 Peter 2.16 says this, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. That word cover-up means hiding or cloaking. Basically, it's not seeing your sin for what it is. So Peter is saying, You have been given freedom by the grace of God, freedom from the penalty of sin, which is the wrath of God and eternal death, and you've been given freedom from the power of sin, which means before Christ and before grace was poured out on us, before we received his forgiveness, that I was in bondage and in slavery to sin. It's all I did. Every, everything that I did was for myself. I had a deep, deep emptiness, and I was doing everything I could to fill it. So Peter says, don't use that freedom that you've been given by grace as a cover-up or a license to go and live sinfully. Paul in Galatians 5.13 and 14 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And again, the flesh could be defined as anything that we do apart from God. It could be defined as that part of us that is, that is anti-God, that is relying upon self, uh, John Piper describes it as a man's ego which feels a deep emptiness and uses the means within its own power to fill that emptiness. So Peter and Paul in the New Testament say, yes, you are free, and that is a gift of God, but don't use that as a license to sin. Don't use that to cover up evil, and don't use that as an opportunity for evil. Here's what this looks like. Well, I know I'm forgiven, so I can kind of do whatever I want. Well, God loves me unconditionally, right? So it really doesn't matter if I do this. Well, I know I'm still going to go to heaven because of forgiveness and his grace, so I'm just going to go forward on this. It's to have a real cavalier approach to the cross. And if this is the thought process that I have, I do not know God as he is. If this is the thought process that I have about forgiveness and grace, I do not understand the cross and what happened when Jesus shed his blood to take upon my sin. This is cheap grace. And that's a deception. There's no such thing. 
Grace came at the highest cost that we could imagine, the death of the God-man. I see this common with people who have a long history in the church. They may not be regenerated, redeemed, born-again believers, but they're churchgoers. And so they've heard of the cross, they've heard of forgiveness, they've heard of grace. And so we take that and we think, okay, well, this is what I've heard. And so maybe it's not that big of a deal if I carry on this way. I see it a lot in immature believers of all ages, but specifically I see this often in, in young Christians who are teenagers and, and in their 20s that again have been raised up underneath the teaching of grace and forgiveness and the cross of Jesus Christ. And so they have a concept, but they use this to excuse their selfish, sinful acts. The thought of, I know I've already had maybe a little too much to drink, but I may as well have another glass of wine. It's not like God's going to stop loving me. Or, you know what? I know I'm going to heaven, so I might just push through this sexual act. Or maybe I'm having a bad day and I've been real harsh with my kids or with my wife. And the thought is, forget it. I'm going to do it anyways. I know tomorrow I'll be forgiven. I'll be dealt with. God still loves me. I got my ticket to heaven. And so I just plow through known sin and I hold on to this concept of grace. Again, if that is the thought process, I do not understand grace and I do not know God as he truly is. If this is a continual posture of our heart. Now, I'm not saying a continual struggle with sin. There is a huge difference between an individual who sins continually and that grieves his heart and he hates that and he continues to confess and he continues to repent and an individual who goes about intent on sinning, who goes about pursuing wanton pleasures with no regard for anyone else or the things of God. If this is the heart posture, I question if you are redeemed Christian. And this is what God says. In 1 John 4:15 it says, "Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him." Now I'm very guilty of loving things of the world, but what this is talking about is when we in some senses, love to do wrong. When we embrace it, when we wed ourselves to it. First John says, you do not know God and the love of God is not in you. Chapter 3, verse 6 says, no one who abides in God keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Now again, on face value, I think I am in trouble there because I continually sin over and over and over and over. But the language is this practice. I am set out intent to sin, not just a one-time rebellion. I'm rebellious plenty as well. But it is this idea that I, it, it doesn't bother me. I purpose to do it. I intend to do it. And I will continue to do it over and over and over. 1 John 3, 8 and 9 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. 
So in some ways, this is a, this is a tough message. This is a call for some introspection. If I hold up this card of heaven, if I hold up this idea and this concept of grace and forgiveness, and I use that to fuel sin, I need to ask myself some tough questions. Do I truly know God? Am I a Christian? Or am I lost? And does the wrath of God continue to hang on me right now? Lest you think I'm being overdramatic, Jesus says if your left eye, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to lose your eye than to lose your soul towards eternal damnation. This is serious stuff. This is our eternal destiny. I believe we're living in one of three places. We're either living in grace, which is synonymous with walking in the Spirit, abiding in Christ, Christ living through us, or we're living under the law. And again, that's that idea that I'm living performance-based acceptance. I'm trying to earn God's favor and earn his love. I'm trying to gain my righteousness by my own self-effort. Or we're living in license. Again, using the grace of God to pursue selfish pleasures. I believe we find ourselves in one of those three places. And it's God's will and it's God's desire for us to walk in grace. So if I am under grace, if I have been forgiven of my sin, if God will never leave me nor forsake me, if he will love me no matter what, which is all true and all biblical, it's things we teach our kids, if that's true, what's my motivation not to sin? Well, first, Going back to our main text, God commands us not to. You were called to freedom, and the command, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And then he gives us what obedience looks like. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled with one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The next few weeks, we're going to talk more about obedience and how that looks and what that looks like. Second, 1 Peter 2.16, the command against this idea of licentiousness. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So both of these scriptures give what not to do, but they also point us what to do. And again, today we're talking about what not to do. And so if you are a visitor, again, I encourage you to come back to hear what this looks like to be carried out. But I also believe that all of us are here by God's providence and sovereignty and he wants us here for a reason and he has a message to give to us. It's interesting how it tells us what not to do and it tells us what to do and it says we're free from slavery underneath sin and the bondage that it brings. It says Christ by his grace has freed you from that now come underneath and become a slave to God. Here's part of the reason why. Why, why. why not continue to walk in sin if I am going to heaven and God loves me no matter what? Because sometimes it's fun. Why not? There's consequences in this life for the believer and the non-believer. Number one, it destroys you and it destroys other people. 
Sin destroys relationships. Sin doesn't happen in an isolated vacuum. It's messy. It gets on each other. None of us would deliberately choose destruction. But yet, that's what sin does. Galatians 5.15, right after it talks about not using our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, it says, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by each other. It says living this way, he gives a, an animalistic picture that doing this, living this way, living in sin, you will destroy, you will consume, you will eat each other up like animals. Number two, it leads you back into the bondage that you were free from. It leads you back into the bondage that Christ died to free you from. Romans 6.15, Paul says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to one another as obedient slaves, you are a slave to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness? So it says that what you present yourself to one of the reasons not to continue to walk in sin and use God's grace towards sin is because you, are no longer, you no longer experience freedom. You fall back into that bondage. Piper again says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What he means by that is if you try, you lose your freedom. When you live according to the flesh, you lose that freedom. You again go back into slavery. Number three, because it's completely inconsistent with your new nature. Romans 6, 1, kind of the same argument that Paul is fighting against. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. You see, Christianity radically changes the human heart. Here's the fear. If we talk too much about grace, then, and people can, can just sin and God will still love them and they still get to go to heaven, then people will live selfishly and do whatever they want. And you know what? That's true. People will. If they only hear this concept of grace, if they only hear this concept of forgiveness. But there is not a single individual who has came to the true saving grace of Jesus Christ who also hasn't received a new heart and the Holy Spirit. See, grace isn't for everybody. It's only for those who have had a regenerated heart. And the reason that you as a born-again, redeemed, regenerated believer who is one with Christ and the Spirit of God inhabits, I can tell you, you can go sin, you can go do whatever you want. I don't think you can consistently do it. Because God has taken your selfish heart of stone and has replaced it with a new heart. We'll get to Ezekiel 36. But God has transferred your desire at the very core of who you are to glorify him. Now, I don't consistently 
always desired his things. Sometimes I desire my own. And that's the war of the spirit and the flesh. There's also consequences in the next life. For the non-believer, Matthew 25, 46 says eternal damnation for those who have not called upon the name of Jesus Christ. For the believer, we miss out on eternal rewards and authority. Again, what's our motivation for godly living? One of them is this idea of a new heart. Let me read Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart, God says, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. This is the new covenant that God ushers in that it says, I'm going to do this upon you. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to turn your heart towards me to long and to want to do the things that would glorify me and walk in a manner that is in line with the way that I want you to walk, that holy standard. That's what God is going to do for me. That's grace. That's why using grace to live contrary to that makes no sense. That's why Paul yells out, no way. The other motivation is these eternal rewards. 2 Corinthians 5.10 talks about the judgment seat of Christ. It says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Levi, would you throw that up there, that judgment seat of Christ? And then we move down to this concept of heaven or hell. Now, again, I want to speak clearly. I want to take trust that God will, 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 will discern these things. We enter heaven on the basis of grace and the finished work of Christ. Callie and Natalie, would you guys come up here? And while I'm talking, bring those things, set them up here. Natalie, maybe you could bring the, those things. Callie, bring the stand and the board. So again, we enter heaven on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done, and that is grace. We enter hell on the basis of our own works. Basically, we've missed the mark. Remember the standard is perfection and holiness? And if we haven't called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and received his forgiveness and that exchange, it says hell is our destiny. But here's the evidence. Would you hold that, Natalie? Callie, you can be my pinner. Let's put that thing in the very front so everyone can, can see it. The Bible doesn't talk a ton about what these rewards will look like. And what it ha does talk about, I haven't studied enough to, to unpack for you. But it talks about, again, we just read, that we will be rewarded for all time for the things that we have done. The first heaven or hell question has to do with what Jesus Christ has done and if we have received that. So for one who has not called upon the name of Jesus Christ, it might look like this. We did some good things. We said thank you for a lot because our mom taught us to be courteous. 
Could you pin that on the board, Natalie and Callie? Or perhaps we lived some moments of morality, that we did things that everyone would say, yeah, that's good. But our motives weren't pure. And so that goes on my board. And maybe I did a lot of things that looked good. Maybe I did things that looked bad. But every one of them was of self. It was all fueled by myself and in my own power. So that goes on the board. And what you don't see up there is any trace of Jesus Christ. And the only way to get to heaven is either be perfect and God's standard of perfect is holiness and the only thing holy is God or through Jesus Christ meeting that standard and giving it to you. There's a lot of people that we know that this is where they sit right now. And so as Christians, let's be evangelistic about the way that we live. Whether that be proclaiming the gospel or simply living the gospel by the way that we love. And then when someone asks why do we live such a way, we know who to point to. Because this is what Jesus has done in my life. He has, re- he has taken the wrath of God that I deserved. I'll give you another example. You can take those off for me. I'm going to put some more on. The thief on the cross, you all remember the story? Where this man lived sinfully, and what we know about him, every bit of his life, he probably never stepped foot in a church or a Sunday school class. He lived for himself to the point where he believed and he declared, I am getting what I deserve, which is crucifixion. So that means that's pretty bad stuff. But yet when he hangs on the cross, and there's this man named Jesus next to him, and there's this talk and there's this rumor and Jesus is claiming that he is the Messiah. He can save people from their sins. This man executes faith and says, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. That's salvation. And that's salvation totally and completely By the grace of God, this man earned the very opposite, and so do I, and so do you. So it's on the basis of what Jesus has done, but when this man stands before the judgment seat, there's going to be evidence put up on his highlight reel. There's going to be this this picture in the courtroom of heaven that says, here's something that I want, God's saying, I want to celebrate with you. And this is the evidence that your faith was real. He says, in that last moment, you exercised faith in Christ. That was the Holy Spirit moving in you and through you and upon you. Let's put that thing on the board. Because anything that's that's yellow, that's glowing of Jesus, that you partnered and you were one with, it was actually Jesus moving through you. And the thief on the cross didn't have a lifetime of those things. So he entered into heaven because of the work of Jesus, and he put faith in that work. But honestly, his highlight reel is pretty small. 
And I don't know what eternal rewards will look like, and he's not going to be begrudging, and we're not going to be condemning of him. We are going to celebrate with him. But that's his highlight reel, and God will celebrate and praise, and we will celebrate and praise. Could you turn to the evidence slide? So earlier we talked about if there's no evidence, if there's nothing yellow, if there's nothing that shines of God, that our works are declared guilty and we're condemned to hell. Listen to these pieces of scripture. James 1.26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but he deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So there's such thing as worthless religion. James 2.26 says, Faith without works is dead. There's such thing as dead faith. The evidence of grace is the work that God has done through us. It's on the basis of grace. It's on the basis of what Christ has done. But evidence that says the faith was genuine, the faith was real, can be seen. Here's an example to help us understand this. This is my son, Brogan. I've heard he looks a little bit like me. He acts sometimes like me. Brogan had nothing to do with being my son. Nothing. It wasn't based on anything that he did. In some ways, you could say it was graced and gifted to him. But when you look at him and you say, whoa, he looks a lot like you. He acts a lot like you. That is evidence that he is my son. It doesn't make him my son, does it? That's evidence that he is my son. And before the judgment seat of Christ, heaven and hell, it has to do with grace and what we've done with Jesus. But then God gives us these evidences that our faith is real. See, this my son looked like his father, God. So the thief on the cross, he has one in that got him to heaven, praise God. I don't want to make light of that. But I do want to motivate us. God motivates us that what we do as Christians matters. What you do every single day makes a difference. In this life, your own peace, joy, the atmosphere that you create for those around you and how they feel, and it matters in the next. I want to compare this with an individual who has walked with Jesus. Let's take Pastor Steve. Steve did some things in his life that were of self, and God said, okay, Pastor Steve, let's get rid of that. He did some things that were good. They had false motives. Uh, they weren't altogether good. They were, they were of yourself. They looked good, but no, we'll get rid of that. We're going to burn those things up. Uh, he did some things that were moral, and he said, yeah, we're not even going to talk about that or highlight that. Ah. But there was a lot of things that Christ did through him that he surrendered to. Let's get that thing on the board. Let's put that thing up because it brings me glory. He introduced some of us and he unpacked this word egothos. It's a Greek word that means good, pure, only God good. It's backed by the scripture that says there is nothing in and of yourself that's any good. But when God touches something, it becomes good. Oh, there was a ton of stuff he did that had thoughts to it, that glowed with Christ. Let's get that thing on the board, because that glorifies me. And that's evidence that his faith was real. 
There was things that he did abiding by the Spirit. That glorifies me. That's evidence that his faith was real, that I was working. Let's celebrate that. Let's worship that. Let's get that up there. And looking at God's highlight reel that is credited to God and Steve as one, he rejoices with glorious eternal reward. God says that he saved us for the purpose of good works, that he has prepared a good work long ago that we might walk in them. He has works for you to do in this life, and you will be rewarded for all time. What you do matters. That is motivation. Because it's rewarded, because it's appropriate, because it's proper, and because it's deep within you, you are righteous, and it, the, the, the natural way for you now to live, if you are a Christian, is righteously. So we have choices. Are we going to walk in grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit, surrendered and recognizing that egothos only comes from God and he just happens to hang it by this broken branch? Or are we going to walk under the law, trying to continue to do our own thing that might look good, moral, but we'll be in, back into experiencing deep bondage? Or are we taking this idea of licentiousness and this concept of grace and this concept of the cross and using it to fuel our own agenda? Let us not be about that. Let us not cheapen or make void the grace of God and the blood poured out for you and for me. Let's pray. You guys can sit down. You can leave it here. Heavenly Father, I first thank you so much for your sacrifice. I thank you for taking my place. I thank you that the life and the death that I deserve Jesus took and the life here and the life everlasting that Jesus earned, he gave to me. I pray that none of us would forget the cost of that gift and that we would live lives of humility and utter thankfulness. I pray that we would understand that every moment we have opportunity to walk in grace. And I do thank you and I look forward to the day that uh, you will reward us in fullness for those things. And as we get rewarded, I believe we will continue to cry out glory to God in the highest. Anything that we do that is truly good, that is truly pure, that is truly holy, that is egothos, is of you. But I pray that our lives would resemble that and, and our, our boards would be full of Christ. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.